We're going to be in Joshua chapter 6 tonight. And that's a good chapter in this Old Testament book. Lots of interesting information about how God chooses to do things His way. And of course, we all, as we talked about last time, our ways are not His ways. And His thoughts are not our thoughts. And they are indeed beyond our finding out. And we're seeing that more and more as we go through this wonderful book, how God helped them cross the Jordan River was a, such a miraculous event for them to have been a part of. And it certainly wasn't uh, a, a very, very expected thing. In fact, they didn't know exactly what he was going to do or how they were going to cross the river until the very last moment when he revealed his plan by parting the water as he did the Red Sea. A great miracle. It was there that the water stood up uh, like a wall. In this chapter, the wall is going to fall. Just kind of the opposite of what he did in the previous miracle. But a very wonderful and miraculous event that is here taking place in this chapter. So chapter 6, again, in the book of Joshua, talking about taking possession, you know, we are also... taking possession of the blessings that God has promised to us, the very many promises that are in the Word of God, both to Israel and to us. We see them written. We know that they are available to us. But there are conditions in most of those promises, not all, but in most of the promises that we see that are indeed available to us, they are conditional promises based on our willingness to do His will and to obey His command, to trust Him, and to seek to know how to live for Him, and be led by His Holy Spirit in the doing of His will. Well, all of that is pictured, really, in this Old Testament book. And here in chapter 6, that level of trust has been reaching its height with the people of Israel. They have been obedient, and they have seen the results of their obedience. But in chapter 5, you may recall, they were instructed to do some things that really had to have been very confusing. Circumcise the men just before they go to battle with the people of Jericho seemed to be a, a really very, very wrong thing for them to have to endure, but they willingly accepted God's will. When Joshua spoke that this was what they needed to do, it apparently was received without question. And they did it, willingly. And then they uh, observed the Passover. And that was something that they hadn't done uh, since they left Mount Sinai. It was an amazing thing for them to celebrate this Passover in the camp just outside of the city of Jericho. I wonder, though, if all of that seemed to them a little bit odd, why aren't they preparing to take the city? How are they going to build the siege ramps? What about the, the, uh, the various means by which they would have to build definite machinery, if you will, that was known to them? The battering rams, uh, if they had catapults in those days, and I'm not sure that they did, but what would they do to come against a walled city 
they've never had to deal with that before. They have had battles, but they've always been open field battles. They won every one of them. That was encouraging. But this was a new challenge. This was something that they didn't really have any experience in conquering a walled city. So they were really very dependent on what Joshua instructed them to do. And they had to trust him that he was indeed still hearing from the Lord. So here we are in chapter 6 again, and we'll read from verse 1, where it says, Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. They closed the gates and there was no traffic going in or out of the city. They must have been on the walls, much of their military might on display uh, at the top of the wall, typically near the towers and along the edges of the wall, their archers would be ready and perhaps uh, they were thinking that they might be able to, def to defend the city even though God had miraculously brought the people of Israel across the Jordan. They had known that and they were very, very frightened. But here they have taken the first step seal up the city, make sure that there's no way that it can be impregnated. But it tells us in verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king, its mighty men of valor. God is reassuring again, I have already done it. I have given you this city, he tells Joshua. What a remarkable thing. And Joshua must have been really happy to hear those words again from the Lord. And I don't know that there was any doubt in Joshua's mind by this point in, in his walk with the Lord because of all the things that had gone on before. But it's always good to feel encouraged and affirmed by the Lord in the things that you're about to participate in, especially when it involves such great risk. So here we are in chapter 6. Now reading from verse 3, we see, the Lord telling Joshua exactly what they are to do in order to conquer the city. He says, You shall march around the city, all you men of war, and you shall go all around the city once. This you, should do, you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Okay, that's interesting. Once a day, we're going to circle the city and the priests are going to blow the trumpet once as they go around the city and then they go back to their camp. They do this for six days straight. And then on the seventh day, they go around the city seven times and they march around the city and the priest will blow the trumpet each of those seven times. That sounds very strange to me, but think about it. Here they are, a large group of people with a fairly large army. Remember, there were 40,000 of the two and a half tribes, armed men that came across the river, and that's in addition to the other nine and a half tribes. And so their military strength was probably, I think, around 600,000 men of war. They had plenty of weapons now that they had defeated Og, and, and uh, the other kings in the eastern side of the Jordan, uh, they had gotten weapons from, I believe, the Egyptians when they were drowned in the Red Sea and perhaps all of their 
armament, their shields and their swords and the dead men washed ashore and they were able to get some weaponry. That would explain how they could have defeated the Amalekites in the wilderness. They've had 40 years where they could obtain the weapons that they needed to enter into a battle situation. And they did succeed in those battles and they took the spoils of those battles, which would include gold and silver, brass and, and iron perhaps, and other weapons of war and things that they could use. And a lot of the silver and gold that became the spoils oftentimes would be shared by the men of war. But many times God required that they, instead of taking the spoils for themselves, would get the spoils collected and it goes into the treasury of the house of the Lord. We'll see that as an example when they are told with regard to the spoils when they take the city of Jericho. But this is a very strange thing. The people on the wall watching all of these events every single day, they circle the city once, the trumpet blast, and then they go back to their camp. They were fearful of the Israelites. And I wonder how much more fearful after every day passed they must have been, wondering what is going on that did not seem to be conventional war preparation. But it wasn't conventional. It was God's way. And God's way is always the best way. Perhaps even some of the Israelites, the soldiers who circled the, the wall, they must have been really anxious to get into the fight, to somehow break down the gates and enter into the city. They knew that the Lord had given the city over to them. They wanted to do this, but they had to wait because Joshua, their leader, said, circle around just once today, go back with your families, spend the night in camp, come back the next day and do the same thing again six days in a row. And again, then on the seventh day, they did that same thing seven times. Well, they were obedient. They didn't understand why. I don't believe Joshua told them anything more than what we've read. So again, it's by faith that they are doing this. And by the way, that's exactly what the book of Hebrews tells us about this incident. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, that by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. And that's exactly what they're going to experience. They don't know that yet. They can assume, perhaps, that something is going to be taking place, but they didn't know the details. They're just doing by faith what God had instructed them to do. That's a clear evidence of their willingness to obey the commandments of God. And that's a great example for us, to obey His commands. You know, the Old Testament Scriptures are given for that purpose. They're given as examples to us that we might know how to live for our Lord in the same way, through obedience to His commands, trusting in His ability to bring to pass that which He has promised. And that's what they're trusting, and that's how we should be trusting also in the Lord. Well, verse 6 says, Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city, and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. 
And so it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and then the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. So a large contingency of warriors both before the ark and behind the ark going around the city. And he again has given this explanation of this is how it is to be done. And again, we're not told what comes next or how this is going to play out in the end. But now it says in verse 10, Joshua had commanded the people saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So not only were they to circle the city and only have the ram's horns blown once, but they were to be absolutely silent as they traveled around the perimeter of the city. I'm sure they traveled around the city far enough away so that they wouldn't be within range of any arrows that the uh, people of Jericho might have uh, sent their way. They were safe to do this. And it was good for them to do this because, again, it was proving that God was in control and that they were willing to obey his commands. Joshua has proven to be a great leader and they have no doubt about trusting in him because he is really second in command. Well, it says in verse 11, so he had the ark and the Lord circle the city, going around it once, and then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then the seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, and so they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city. I can well imagine that they must have been very, very loud when they got that command to shout. What a crying out of sound that must have been. In the ears of the people on the wall of Jericho, a very frightening sound indeed. But it's not their shouting that accomplished the miracle that is about to take place. This miracle was indeed a supernatural event. Some have tried to explain it away. Some have tried to say, well, the resonance from the sounding of the trumpet blasts and the people shouting were the cause of the wall falling down. Or there was an earthquake that caused the wall to fall down. All kinds of natural, perhaps what people consider to be at least, scientific possibilities. I call it pseudoscience, and so does the Apostle Paul in another part of the Word of God. 
science falsely so-called. There is no material reason for the walls to fall down the way that they did. And I'll explain that as we read further. But they did do what Joshua told them to do. When he said, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, he tells us in verse 17 that this is what's going to happen. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accurse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated of, to the Lord, and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. On this particular battle, the first fruits of the conquering of the land, Joshua is saying, all the spoils don't go to the warriors, the spoils go to the house of the Lord, exclusively, with no exception. And he warns them, if you do partake of any of this, you shall be cursed. He calls it, again, the accursed things. The word accursed can also be considered in a different context as sacred things. And so what he's saying here is these things are indeed for the Lord and not for you. They are to be only for the Lord and none of it goes to you. That's a very, very, very severe warning that he is giving here. Read it again in verse 18. Lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. He does not want this to happen. And of course, if you know the story, chapter 7 tells us that it did happen. But we're not going to get to that tonight. Let's look more closely, though, at what takes place next after we look at what he said with regard to Rahab the harlot. You remember, Rahab had helped the two spies. And the two spies, when they left the city, having been let down by a rope on the outside wall by Rahab through a window in her house, they had given her a scarlet cord to place in her window so that when the people of Israel did attack, they would see that scarlet cord and know that that was the house of the woman who helped the men to get the information that they brought home to Joshua. That was the plan. They had told her, gather together all your family into your house and we will spare you and your household if you keep that scarlet cord in your window. Apparently, that's exactly what she did. We talked about that scarlet cord a couple of weeks ago, a scarlet cord of redemption. It's a beautiful picture, if you will, of salvation. And it's seen throughout the Word of God in various ways. And it's a really very good study if you want to get into a lexicon and do a search for the, the cord of redemption or the scarlet cord of redemption. It's worthwhile and it's a good study. But here we have the promise that Joshua is willing to make with regard to Rahab. Do not touch her. Leave her alone. Let her live. She and all who are with her in the house because she hid the messengers that we sent. Well, verse 20 continues and says, So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened 
when the people heard the sound of the trumpets and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. It's not that the wall fell in or, or out. It fell straight down. It fell flat. It was just simply dissolved. There's no rubble. It fell flat to the ground. That could not have happened by any earthquake. And for another reason, Rahab's house on the wall was still there standing. Every part of the wall around the whole city, with the exception of that one place where her house was, fell to the ground. That's a miracle. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says that by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. It's also by faith that Rahab put out that red cord. And that's also recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. She's mentioned in the book of Hebrews. She's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew's gospel. She is an ancestor of Jesus Christ, of David the king. And through David and his lineage, Jesus became a part of her story. Along with a few other women of note, Ruth the Moabitess and Bathsheba, Bathsheba, the woman that David took to himself and whose husband he had murdered so that they could come together in a relationship. That was all accepted by God and used by God in spite of the fact that many of those stories that we read throughout the Old Testament are stories that you look at and say, how imperfect mankind is. And how could Jesus have been a part of such a lineage as that? It only says one thing about the grace of God, that it is unmeasurable grace. Here in chapter 6, again, of Joshua's story, we have this remarkable miracle. The walls came tumbling down. They fell to the ground. A supernatural event, just like the water standing up as a heap, the Jordan River and the Red Sea, the walls came crashing down and the people were able to enter the city and they took the city without any difficulty at all. It tells us simply, again in verse 20, at the end of the verse, then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. That's all it says about the conquering of the city of Jericho. They had hardly anything to do except to obey the Lord in going around the city those seven days and waiting for the miracle of God to take place. That is faith. And in obedient faith, God always does what He has promised. He did this so that they could know that He is their God. He gives promises to all of us. And those promises that we have been given are manifold promises. The book of Ephesians is a good place to go just to see a short list of the very many promises that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Found in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians. I recommend reading that and reading it often. It's a very wonderful set of promises that are given there, but they're not the only ones. The promises of God are throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we can take hold of those promises. We can take possession of that which God has made available to us. It requires only faith and obedience and trust.
Just those three. And the grace and the mercy of God will be manifest when we do those things for His glory. They did it, and they are an example to us so that we can also participate in the great blessings that God has in store for us by faith in Him. Chapter 6, verse 21 continues, and it says in verse 21 that they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. That's a terrible thing, isn't it, to think about. Total annihilation of a city. The whole population. Animals as well. And some people take issue with that. And unfortunately, it's not an easy thing to understand. Why would God do this to a people like this? Couldn't he have taken them as slaves? Couldn't he have uh, sent them away to other places? Couldn't he have been more merciful to this people? The answer lies in the promise that he gave to Abraham some 400 plus years before this. When God spoke to Abraham and told him that he was going to bring his people into the land, he told him that it would be four generations, 400 years, before they would enter into the land to partake of what God had promised them. But it was a promise to Abraham. And the reason that he said that it would be so long is that the fullness of the Amorites had not yet been complete. He's referring to the people that were in the land. He said the iniquity, I think I said it incorrectly, the iniquity of the Amorites has not been completed. In other words, God was going to punish the people in Canaan for their sins. And he gave them 400 years to turn from those sins. They had ample warning. They saw the people of Israel in the wilderness. They saw what had taken place as they came out of Egypt and they had seen the Red Sea being parted. They knew about the defeat of the Amalekites. They knew about the way that God had blessed them in the wilderness by feeding them manna every day. They saw that there was a way that the Lord had led them through the wilderness for those 40 years with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. They knew that this God was a mighty God and they could have pre prevented this if they had chosen to repent. But the condition of their sin was such that God had to judge them to eliminate the sin completely. In order for the people of God to enter into the land, there could be no left behind sin of the people of Canaan. No altars, no worship of the other gods that they all worshipped, no way for them to inhabit the land unless they were to do what God had told them to do with regard to the destruction of the peoples. And of course you know that they did not do that completely. They should have because it was God's will for them. But it's not because that they did not do it that God uh, would, would have been taken by surprise. He certainly wasn't. But he used it and fulfilled his plan of redemption in spite of their unwillingness to be obedient in every detail of the conquest of the land. But here in Jericho, it appears that they were absolutely willing to do everything that God had told them to do. And they thought that the defeat was indeed complete because they had destroyed all of the occupants, all of the animals, the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, by the edge of the sword. 
But he says in verse 22, But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman all that she has, as you swore to her. He was successful in preserving Rahab and her family. And again, she became part of the lineage of Jesus Christ as a result of Joshua's faithfulness to what was supposed to have been done according to the word of the Lord with regard to this woman Rahab. Well, verse 23 says, And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all of her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. They couldn't go into the camp of Israel because they were Gentiles. But ultimately, they became proselytes. At least she did. We're not told anything about the rest of her family, but she became the wife of a man named Salmon. And they together bore the ancestors of David. And so we have a great story here. Rahab was preserved for a very particular reason. It goes beyond just the conquest of Jericho. It goes beyond the time of the judges. It goes beyond the time of David and all of the kings that followed after him. It goes beyond the time where the Babylonian captivity took place. It goes beyond all of that to the day of Jesus Christ. If she had not been preserved in this one battle, the story of redemption would have taken a completely different turn. I don't know exactly what God might have done if Joshua hadn't obeyed that simple command. But we know that he did. And as a result of what he did, we have this wonderful book and this privilege that we have also of serving him because of this written word as a testimony to the faithfulness of God in his promises. So we continue in verse 22 and it says, But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, before we read the last couple of verses, it tells us that they took the spoils, the silver and the gold, all of the vessels of bronze and iron, and they put them into the treasury of the house of the Lord. It seems as though they were absolutely perfect in their obedience to the Lord's command. They did exactly as he had told them to do. But there's one exception. And I want to read the first verse of chapter 7 to show you what that exception is. The first verse of chapter 7 begins with a word that I refer to often when it's specifically related to God. And the word is but. I love reading in the word of God when it says but God. Because that tells me something good is taking place after having read about something that was not good. We always see the things that God does as a result of that which has been done with the words, but God. And I love to see that in the Word of God. But that's not what we have here in chapter 7, verse 1. It says, but the children of Israel. Uh-oh. That's not a good sign. And if you read further, it says, they committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. 
For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, and so the anger of the Lord burned against all the children of Israel. Take note of what's taking place. I'll, I'll only briefly mention it, and then we'll get to this next time we get together, the Lord willing. But Joshua had told them all the way back in the verse 18, And you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. It only takes one. It only takes one to disobey the command of God to completely stain the people of God. It happens all the time. In one small church, one person can ruin the reputation of the entire body. That's one of the reasons why Paul emphasizes so very, very strongly that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You must take out the leaven. You must make sure that there's no leaven in the lump because once there is leaven found, it destroys the whole. It's a very, very important principle and precept that is given by the Apostle Paul and this is one of the reasons the sin of one man has caused a great deal of trouble for the people. We'll get to that next week. But let me backpedal now to the last couple of verses of chapter 6 and we'll end there, where it says in verse 26, Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city of Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. Verse 26 is an interesting prophecy. He's saying that if anybody tries to rebuild this city of Jericho, he's going to suffer consequences. And the consequences are given very, very clearly here. Two of his sons will die in his attempt to rebuild the city of Jericho. Now, the city of Jericho was completely destroyed. And it never really was rebuilt. Not completely. There were efforts made and there is indication that in Jesus' day, there was a small number of people living in that region where the city of Jericho once was. But it never became the city that it once had been. There was another city also named Jericho, just to the southeast of the original location of the city of Jericho. And that city was more inhabited and more modern in Jesus' day, at least for that time, than most of the other cities around. It was considered a kind of a destination spot for many of the rich people of Israel, a kind of a Las Vegas, if you will, or a special time away place where you could go and entertain yourself for a season. That Jericho was not the same Jericho as the original Jericho. But we find a very interesting story in 1 Kings, in chapter 16, verse 34, where it tells us that there was a man who did indeed attempt to rebuild that city. And turn with me there, it's just a short couple of verses. 1 Kings, chapter 16, 
beginning with verse 33. Now, Ahab is a king of the northern ten tribes at this time. He's a very evil king. And it tells us in verse 33, And Ahab made a wooden image. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So that kind of leads into the part of the story that I want to focus on in chapter 16, verse 34, where it says, In his days, in Ahab's days, that gives us the sense of when did this take place? It was when the, the tribes of Israel had been divided. It's during Ahab's reign, a couple of hundred years after David. In his days, it tells us in verse 34, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, the explanation is that his two sons died during his attempt to rebuild, and it was a completion of that which Joshua had spoken 500 years prior to that particular time. An amazing prophecy made by Joshua recorded for us at the end of chapter 6 as they finished this conquest of this nearly impregnable city. But with God, you know, He cannot be stopped. When He chooses to do something, He will get it done. That's who our God is. And we see it throughout the Word of God. We'll continue to see it as we go through this wonderful book of Joshua. I encourage you to read chapter 7 and to take a look at just exactly what did place, did take place rather, in uh, this situation that was the result of one man's sin. It's terrible consequences. And we'll look at that the next time we get together. Till then, may God richly bless you. Grace and peace.